people of Earth. Geek Hope. Everyone, we just want to give you a little note before we begin because just it's a Dece- little note. <laughs> it's December, right, Marla? And I'm freezing even in my own house. Yeah, not only that, but we're going to be ho ho hoing our brains ho, out. Ho hoing. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're going to take a tiny hiatus here, and we're going to resume in the new year. Yeah, because it takes like an hour to go around the block mm. when you go to Manhattan. <laughs> yes, but when we come back, we're going to talk about all. All, all the of thing, that. Yeah, everything that <laughs> happened to us in December. Also, we want to thank you all for listening to our little podcast. Yeah, we got like 12 million, I mean 1,200 <laughs> views. 12,000. Almost. So uh, happy Chris Mahana Kwanzaa to everyone. And uh, here's our episode. Ta-da. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm Willa. I'm Marla. And we are... The, the gig hugs. And who's here? <gasps> it's my brother. Oh, my God. Oh, Larry. Hi, Larry. Say hi. Hello. <laughs> it's like John Lennon is here, except it's Larry Basson. Yeah. Well, audience, I know you've heard me tell many stories in which my brother figured apart, and so here we are. I'm wondering if you're actually going to tell some stories I've told, which would be an interesting thing to hear them from your perspective. Well, I'll certainly be happy to do that if you'd like, but I, I figured I'd start with some of the earlier things, like way before you were involved in Club Dates. See, he's so far ahead of me. I know. <laughs> before we do that, though, I just would mention your resume, so to speak, which Larry has been doing Club Dates for a ridiculous amount of time, thousands, thousands, thousands. He's... Since time began. <laughs> <laughs> Since dinosaurs walked the earth. <laughs> Uh, and right now he's in a band in the Hudson Valley called the Carrie Zaz Band, and they've won all kinds of awards, and that's what he's doing now. He did have his, his stadium gig with Tommy James and the Shondells. That was probably a big thrill. I never made it to the big stage like that, but you did, my brother, so that's great. And we've been playing together since, what, I was two and you were five? Something, something like, like that, yeah, yeah something like nuts. that. So, sure, tell us about your first gig. Uh, yeah, okay, like my first professional gig, right? First gig you got paid for. Yeah, well, that would be for Herb Rosen. Okay. Yeah, but let me tell you how I ended up doing that at the, at the tender age of 13. Certainly. It was, it was kind of wild. <laughs> so our parents were really great dancers. And any time that we would go to a catered function of any kind, at some point during the evening, they would be whirling around the dance floor and people would sort of like, make a circle around them and watch them do their thing. Yeah, like a movie. Right. And back then, there were no DJs. It was always a live band at these things. And there was this band leader named Herb Rosen. And my mom was a real good looker. She looked a lot like uh, Doris Day. And so this band leader was watching them dance, and he got the hots for my mother. (laughs) So he came on to her, but in an offhanded way. While your father was in the room. While my father was in the room, right. That's class. That's correct. Well, he just went over to her at one point, because my mother was never glued to my father. She was always flitting around the party, you know. She was a total social butterfly. Absolutely. Yeah. So he went over to her and he said, look, I see that you're dancing. You must like the band. I also see that you have a son who's bar mitzvah age. (laughs) He must have a lot of friends who are getting bar mitzvah. (laughs) He was would, trying to get work, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah, so would you be interested in selling for my band? And I'll give you a commission on every job that we can wow. book. Wow, that's ingenious. Yeah, Why don't ingenious. you give me my, your telephone number and we could talk about it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, you know, my mother thought maybe it's a come on, but she was also giving piano lessons on the side and making extra cash all the time. And by the so. age of 13, you already played the guitar? Yes, okay. yes. well... Well, my mother started us on music when each of us hit the age of four. So, right. So you were already... So from four to 11, I played the piano. Oh, okay. And uh, that's where I learned about theory. Who you gave know. you the guitar? Uh, that, it wasn't given to me. What happened was we, w- we went to Cousin Elise's house. Right. And she had an acoustic guitar. I was about 11 at this point. And I went into her room and I saw it there and I just picked it up 
and I played each string, and I heard the intervals between the strings. Right, because you had already been playing piano. So I could I could hear what the intervals were between them, and I just started fooling around with it. And the next thing I knew, I was playing a few chords. Now at this point, having been taking lessons from my mother for that long, and I was getting into my rebellious stage at eleven. A friend of mine's older brother turned me and him onto pot. So oh, that's pretty young. Yeah, Paul Wasserman. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I hope Paul doesn't get arrested for that. Arrest that man. <laughs> but anyway, so I was getting really bugged by my mother correcting me every time I was practicing. She would scream from the, the kitchen, kitchen, that's an F sharp, not an F natural. Me too. It was brutal. And I say, Mom, I'm practicing. I'm allowed to make mistakes. <laughs> but it's an F sharp. So I was really in love with the fact that I could figure this thing out and not have to take lessons. And not listen to her correct you. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So I just started playing the guitar. I got my folks to buy me a guitar, and uh, I started playing. Was that the Ardsley? Uh, No, it was before the Ardsley. The Ardsley I bought, that was a silver sparkle, three-pickup electric guitar made in Italy. Yeah, it was a terrible guitar, but it looked great. It looked great. Yeah, I remember that guitar. Yeah. Okay, so you're 13, you play guitar. Right. Right. So he calls my mom up and makes an appointment to come to the house on a Thursday afternoon, when I'm sure he knows my dad's working. And my mother at that point realizes, okay, this is probably more come on than anything else. So she hangs up the phone and she says to me, Larry, this guy is coming over on Thursday afternoon. You'll be home from school. So when he comes, go in your bedroom and practice your guitar. He'll hear that somebody's in the house and maybe he'll behave himself. So I said, okay. He comes, I go into my room, I'm playing for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then I look up and he's standing in the doorway of my bedroom watching me play. And he says, you sound pretty good. Do you sing? I said, yeah. He says, sing me something. I sang him something. Now, this is 1964. Mm-hmm. I'm 13. And he says to me, how would you like to make 15 bucks a night? There it is, 15 bucks. That's amazing. Like, you're just in your house, and you get discovered in your own friggin' bedroom. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? By a guy who's trying to get in my mother's pants. pants. That's a great story. <laughs> Let's see, pussy guitar. I'll take the guitar. Exactly, exactly. Money. Exactly. So I had a Gemini 1 amplifier, two channels, uh, Ampeg, and uh, he would pick me up at the house, bring me to the gig. Uh, he would plug his microphone into one channel of my amp and use it as a PA. Cause it we've was, had this conversation. Yes, so we've been people. there. Yeah, 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 you know. And I would sit on the side of the stage and wait for him to go over the microphone at one point. Okay, it's time for some rock and roll. Say it with me, Marla. The The Rock. rock. Do you do The Rock? (laughs) (laughs) This is before that was really a question. And and today, even like, oh, we have to worry. Like, he wants to hire my 13-year-old son. He's a pedophile. Oh, my mother wasn't worried. (laughs) My mother wasn't worried. He just wanted me. He didn't want you. (laughs) She was excited that I was going to make some money. Money. Yeah, there you go. You know. (laughs) So I would sit there until he would say, it's time for some rock and roll. And I would get up, and I'd plug my guitar into the other channel of my amp, and I'd use his mic. And then I would actually lead these older musicians through these one, four, five basic Chuck rock Berry and roll songs. Chuck Berry, Little Richard. Because that was uh, you the know. rock then. It was the Yeah, piece, you right? know, all the one, four, five rock and roll. And then I'd play like two or three songs, and then I'd sit down again for another like 30, 40 minutes. Right. But most of these gigs were bar mitzvahs with all of these 12 and 13 year old girls. So they wanted, oh. So that's when he started his romantic career, too. <laughs> and so while I'd be sitting on the side so of the true. stage, these girls would be coming over to me and pulling me into classrooms in the temples. Really? And, yeah, wow. and making out with me. Oh my so, God, what a I'm life. definitely going to be a musician. <laughs> Without a doubt. This was like Without heaven. Without a doubt. This, this was, was heaven. Wow. And they just found you. Amazing. Wow. The problem, though, became, after a little while, that the band didn't want me playing with them. Not because I didn't know the music that they were playing, because I had learned all of that stuff on the piano when my mother was teaching me that stuff. And I knew what the changes were. But this was like pre-electric keyboards. So you were louder than them. No. What it really was was that... There were no real keyboard players. It was mostly accordion players. Right, right. You know, Not even Cordovox yet. Cordovox came along. After, right. This is, yeah, Cordovox came along at least like two or three years after I started doing gigs. Right. So the accordion players were playing the bass on the buttons. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And a lot of those buttons are not just a single note, they're intervals. And because they were playing the same songs all the time, they were bored, and so they were using a lot of substitute chords. And right. And, and like if jazz. I was playing the chord the that would, Yeah, if I was playing the chord that the song was supposed to be, and they're playing something that's a substitute, they were bugged. They right. didn't want me doing that. So after a couple of years of doing this... Just being the rock guy. Just being the rock guy, yeah. I said, I got to do something about this. So I bought a Hagstrom bass guitar. And all of a sudden, I started playing bass a little bit, and they freaked out because now I'm enhancing the sound of the band right, and immensely. The, and the accordion player, and the accordion play players doesn't have to think about the bass; they could just do whatever they want on right, the accordion. And you know all the tunes already, and so I know it's all the tunes. Yeah. yeah, electric basses. Nobody was playing electric basses then. Yeah. But you're perfect because you did both. I did both, and I could like put down the bass and pick up the guitar, and we could go through the rock tunes, and then I'd go back to enhancing the sound of the bass instead of clashing. Right. And there are a number of guys in the business who have come, like uh, Jeff Gantz. Mm -hmm. I ran into Gantz somewhere, and he thanked me for giving him his career. Why is that? And I said, what are you talking about? I, I never even turned you on to a leader or anything. Mm -hmm. He said, no, but you were the first one who was really doing the guitar-bass double. And that opened up doors for all us guitar players who could do something like that. Could and, play the bass, too. And it became a thing in club dates. But it all started because this guy had the hots from my mother, you yeah. know? Well, everything started because someone had the hots from your mother. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you, right. mother. That's it. So Sex makes the world go round. So your first real gig... Was a club date. A club date. A bar mitzvah right. for Herb Rosen. Because I know you had bands like in high school too. And you yeah, but this was before high school. Wow. I was 13. Amazing. And I was the only kid in the neighborhood who had his own money. So did you end up losing your virginity to one of these girls at the bar mitzvahs? No. <laughs> no That's another show. Because yes. <laughs> I don't think there were a lot of those girls who were interested in actual intercourse yet. Right. They like it was making just making out. out. Just making Heavy out, petting. feeling up, you know, like that. You know. That's not bad when you're 13. Right. But it was much better than not bad. <laughs> tell, the, uh, tell the story about he the, said slyly. The, the, the Herb Rosen screamer. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So already the audience knows by now what a screamer is, so we don't have to... Yes, I heard that podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah, so this was a screamer on a different level because this guy actually had the balls to book himself at two parties <laughs> simultaneously on the same floor of Leonard's. On the same floor. And think he could get away with it like Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Keep exactly. going into the bathroom and changing yeah. your clothes. Yeah. So on the way to the gig, he wow. starts cluing me in and he says okay this is what's going on i have these two jobs one starts a half hour after the other <laughs> so i'm going to go to the job but i'm immediately going to tell the people that i'm sick and that i have another trumpet player coming to replace me he'll be here soon and i have another guy coming in who's going to take care of the job and play trumpet then i'm going to go into the other room but in the off chance that someone sees me in there from this party and comes over and asks you what's going on, your answer is going to be, oh, that's not Herb Rosen. That's Hal Rosen, Herb Rosen's twin His brother. brother. I, I, I was thinking that, but I said, really? That's really... Really, that's what he did. That's right. a lot of balls. It really is a lot of balls. Right, so he starts our job. This other trumpet player comes like 20 minutes into the job. He leaves, says goodbye to the people, and then he goes into the other room. And are you leading the band? No, I'm not leading oh. the band. I'm just a kid. Somebody else is I'm leading I'm just a band. kid, right. But anyway, Herb goes into the other room and proceeds to play the entire job with his back to the audience. <laughs> to hide his face. He's so looking at a mirror. Pictures. Yeah, he's looking at a mirror behind the stage <laughs> and making announcements, everything, because he oh, can see hiding. in the mirror. He's, he's, he oh. doesn't want the chance that someone from our party is going to walk by his room and, and see him. him there and say, what the fuck is going on? Unbelievable. And, you know, you have to figure this is not the first time he's done this, right? I'm sure it's not. Yeah. But the proximity of the two rooms was unusual. Unbelievable. That's you know? brass balls. Yeah. Okay, so he gets through the whole job without being discovered and comes back into our room after the job. Our job ends, and uh, we're on the third floor, and it's raining. <laughs> but now he's worried that someone will still be there in the lobby see, and see him leave. So he says, we're going out the back door. There's like a fire escape on the back of Leonard's. <laughs> So I'm carrying my amp and my guitar, and he has 
next to nothing because so he's playing trumpet. So you got stuff in both hands, and you're going I got down stuff in both hands. I'm this kid. I'm this 13 year old kid, and the stairs are all slippery. You know, they're made out of metal. It's raining. We get to the back of Leonard's, which is just covered in garbage. Right. We get to still the is, still right, is. We get to the corner of the building, and the gate is locked. <laughs> we can't get out this way. So he finds a door that opens into one of the lower ballrooms, and we get into the ballroom. And now he's peeking through the doors of the ballroom into the lobby to see if he recognizes anybody from the party that he just finished, right. you know, or the party that I was doing. But it's kind of empty. So he says to me, okay, stay close. And he takes an umbrella that he has, and he closes it over his head. <laughs> and he goes running through the lower lobby of Leonard's with me running after him with my amp and my guitar. We get into the parking lot. He opens the back door of his car. I throw my stuff into the back seat. We get into the front seat. And he turns to me, totally serious, and says, these are the things you have to do to earn a living in this business. <laughs> Unbelievable. Okay. So what story were you planning on telling? Uh, there were a few. I mean, the early days of the business were nuts. So he got away with it, that guy. You know, it was, yeah, it was like shooting fish in a barrel because there were no DJs. Yeah. There were no showcases. Right. right. There were no videos. It was just word of mouth. But it was a service they needed because there were a lot of bar mitzvahs and everyone needed a band. So what guys used to do is they used to have a couple or four people, both sides of the family, come down to a job that they were performing. And they were not allowed in the room. They never were. Because it's a private party. Right. So these people had to like peek through the doors of the ballroom to see what was going on. And they never really saw the band. Right. They, all they heard was music, and they could see that there were people on the dance floor dancing. So people would peek through the doors, and then when the band took a break, the band leader would go out and book the job in right. the lobby. Right. Right. Yeah. right. You know? So what was the weirdest club date you ever did? Well, let's just talk about bar mitzvahs for a second. Okay. Okay? Sure. Because one time I did a bar mitzvah in uh, downtown Brooklyn by the Navy Yards. I was just there. We were just there. We were just there. This was a bar mitzvah where the guy rented six square blocks. Oh my God! Of that area. Wow. Filled the streets with sawdust. Six square blocks circus? of sawdust. Like a circus. Sor- like a circus, and act. then had pony rides and clowns and all kinds of acts going on all around this six square block area. What it, decade was this? Probably the 60s. Was it wow. less populated and less built up then? Because, like, how could you just. It was rent very six industrial. Streets? Right. Right. So, so nobody was, was there. Ki- anyway. It was kind of closed down on the right. weekends. Right. So that's why he did it. That's why he was able to do it. Right. Yeah. Wow. Because you couldn't do that now. <laughs> yeah. But the one that was the most shocking to me. Is this the Brazilian? Yes. I told that story. Yeah. Yeah. With Jordan with the, with the Brazilian dances with the pasties and the tassels. Well, my part of the story is Kenny Lehman. All right. Oh, good. Tell, tell your story. Because Kenny, Kenny and I were standing next to each other, and we were watching this thing go by. If, for those of you who didn't hear the prior podcast, what it was was they sat the bar mitzvah boy down in the mi- in middle of the dance floor, and then these 10 Brazilian drummer guys with drums around their neck and shorts and no shirts... And glistening torsos. Yeah, and, you know, came in drumming. And then these gigantic flowered hair pieces, half-naked women with pasties and G-strings came out dancing as well. And stiletto heels. Yeah, and most of the dancing that they're doing was seeing how fast they could shake their ass cheeks. And boobs. Yeah, and we're standing here with our mouths open just watching this insanity because somehow this guy interpreted bar mitzvahs when you come a man, and uh, this is what you like as a man. I was just going to say, today you are a man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. So, but Kenny Lehman is standing there. So like, he's the sax player on the gig. He's the sax player on the gig, yeah. And he's standing there, and he's got this woman jiggling her ass right in front of his eyes. Oh, Kenny? You know? Kenny, oh. yeah. And he's like transfixed. <laughs> and I just lean over at him okay. and his ear, and I say, and this, my son, is the true meaning of bar mitzvah. That's so funny. <laughs> and he's been smiling ever since. Oh, yeah. man. Kenny. <laughs> so what else you got? Well, you know, a good example of how this got out of hand 
was uh, Pat was doing a sublead in the Crest Hollow one time. Mm-hmm. And these people who were making these parties and spending all this money, they had this very unrealistic expectation of what was going to happen. Not only the, the hosts and hostess, but the bar mitzvah kids as well. They had this gigantic expectation that every moment of every party is going to be the most exciting moment of their lives. Right. Pat was doing this job, and when I was doing finals with the people, they kept telling me about, and then this magician is going to perform, and then these dancers are going to perform, and then these singers from Broadway are going to perform. And at one point, I turned to them. I said, you know, this is a lot of entertainment that you're trying to squeeze into a four-hour reception, and there's not going to be a lot of time for dancing. They said, well, yeah, I know, but we really want to do this. We think it'll be really special. I said, okay, you know. It's your choice. So Pat gets into the job, and usually his big number was shout. Right, right. He used to go out into the audience with shout and get people singing on a cordless microphone, and it was the frenzy of shout, you know. These people wanted shout, like, right away. (laughs) Oh, God. So he went out and did it, and it was what it was supposed to be, and then it had to stop because another act was coming out. And then when he went into regular dance music afterwards... It was boring. Anticlimactic. Right. And the bar mitzvah girl goes running out of the room. The parents go running out of after her. Oh, my you know, God. And she's crying oh and, and trying to console. And Future party, bridezilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Meantime, you know, Broadway is coming on. Magicians are coming on. All this stuff the is elephants. going on. <laughs> and, and nobody's dancing because right. there's no, no time to do it. Right. And a million courses as well. Right. You know, an antipasto, a salad, a soup, or everything that you could possibly jam in and spend money on. And it turned out that this guy was a friend of Joe Monty's. Oh, no. Joe Monty's the guy that owned the Crest Hollow Country Club. Right, where I was the house band for like over 20 years. Right. And so Joe got really upset that his friend was upset. And I had to explain to him exactly right. what was going on. Did he understand? He understood. But I had to somehow placate the people. Yeah. You had to make it work. Somehow. I had to make it work because I was the house band there. They were pissed off that there was hardly any dancing. Oh, and God. So I had to refund some of their money just to keep things straight with Joe. Wow. My favorite story, though, is about Sid Davis. Oh, yeah. Tell that one. Sid Davis was a drummer. But he was a comic genius. I mean, a real comic genius. He wrote for National Lampoon. He had a short that he wrote, a short film called The Dove. Yes, one of my all-time favorite shorts. Yeah, which basically was a series of scenes from Ingmar Bergman movies where there are just two protagonists, a woman and a man, and they're interacting. And as the climax of the scene would approach, a dove would fly overhead and shit on one of them. <laughs> It was great. It's a great. That was what was supposed to happen. Well, it's a comic. That short. was the comic. Oh, short. right, right, right. This is like the classic. And it was an it was one <laughs> scene after another after another, and it's coming to a climax, and a dove shits on something. Yeah, I mean, Ingmar Bergman, all these they're very heavy movies, right? You know? So then, like, yeah. it's, it's comic like relief. death playing with a, a crusading knight chess, you know, and then the dove shits on him. Yeah, and and, and you know, it was actually up for an Academy Award. <laughs> so he was. That way, he thought that way. He used to put on this hobo mask and he'd sing, I've grown accustomed to your face. <laughs> you know, he had these things written on his snare drum, played a, a party for Cy Kogan's relatives. Everybody looked like Cy, even the women. <laughs> you know, he just was a very funny guy. Yes. And his piece de resistance for me was that this guy. As we would start playing the parties over, which was the thing that you always did in those days, was packing up his drums while he was playing. He had his trap case open next to him, and he's taking pieces off and playing with one hand (laughs) as the song is going on, until when we would get to the end, all that would be left up would be one cymbal stand and a cymbal without the nut on top. Uh, No (laughs) snare either? Nothing. Just all that's left up is that, right? And... And uh, he would hit the cymbal on the last note, take the cymbal, toss it into the trap case, close up the stand, put that in two, and close up the trap case. And he'd be out before the trumpet player. Even the bass drum was back there? Everything. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it was amazing to see. It was like really a talent that you couldn't. <laughs> Because yeah. he's playing and singing, and he's sitting while he's doing that, right? Unbelievable. And there's the less people in the room, too. Did he pack up the seat? No, he would be sitting on a chair for the last oh. set. <laughs> right. He had it in mind. He knew what he was doing. Right. Anyway, so we're on a job, and this is a wedding, and uh, Bernie Lewis is the sax player and band leader. Bernie used to call tunes and never knew the name of the song. He would always say the first words of the song. That's how he would call it. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, everybody up on the yeah. dance floor for a little Why Do Birds? Yeah. Why do birds <laughs> suddenly <laughs> appear? That's, that's just their Why Do Birds. Why Do Birds. Yeah. Made yeah. sense to him. <laughs> yeah. So we're playing, and uh, at one point he says, it's time for some rock, because the bride and groom wanted rock music. And I start playing, and the next thing I know, the bride's grandmother comes over to the stage and starts screaming at me. Stop this awful music. Uh-huh. You're ruining my granddaughter's wedding. You have to stop right now. And she's screaming at me. An old lady. Yeah, yeah, this old lady. And I turn to Bernie. I look at him. He looks at me. He says, okay, take it out when you can. So I take it out. A half hour goes by. The bride and groom come by and say, they say, where's the rock music? <laughs> oh, Grandma God. said no. So I, we don't say anything. So Bernie, Bernie says, you know, uh, I'll try it again, but play lower. So I make it soft, but it's not about the volume. It's just about that music. She, she hates. Grandma. Right. And now she comes up to the stage, and now she's waving her finger in my nose, you know, <laughs> almost picking my nose with her finger. Stop this right now. You have to stop this right now. Sid sees this going on. He's playing drums. And he stops playing the drums, and he gets up from behind the drums. He comes running over to the front of the stage, and he squeezes in between me and Grandma (laughs) and goes nose to nose with her and says, You're out of the game! (laughs) And he points to the side of the stage. You're out of the game. (laughs) Like an umpire. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. like fighting with an umpire. So, (laughs) So we... We crack up. We crack up. And we're laughing so hard that we can't play. And every time Bernie... Everybody was happy. Everybody goes... Every time Bernie goes to the saxophone, he puts his lips on the mouthpiece and starts laughing. He can't can't blow this. And it went on... The laughing went on for at least 15, 20 minutes. Wow. Where we just couldn't get started because it was the funniest thing we had ever seen. And Grandma? What happened to Grandma? Grandma, when he screamed, you're out of the game... She was so flustered that she's like stumbled backwards into the arms of someone who was behind her. Right. He caught her, <laughs> shuffled her over to a chair, and put her down. And we're seeing this whole thing and dying laughing, you know? I'm and surprised. Bernie had a hard time collecting at the end of the party. I bet he did. Yeah, you costed my grandmother. <laughs> but that was Sid Davis. He was just one of the funniest guys ever. Larry, why don't you talk about some of the practical jokes you played on Psy? Oh, well, there were many of those. Right. I, audience, I just want to say Larry worked for Cy a lot longer than I did. And, of course, I've mentioned him in other podcasts. But one thing, even though he cheated us out of $5 off of every gig and made us play two-hour sets often, he could take a joke. So, consequently, practical jokes were okay. And uh, we all played practical jokes on Cy. And take it, Larry. <laughs> yes. Uh, man, many variety of yeah. practical jokes. yeah. yeah. I just want to add a little background about Cy. Okay. The thing about Cy was he came from an old school in club dates where all the leaders felt like this. If I can steal a little bit of money from you (laughs) and you don't say anything about it, then I'm a schmuck for not taking it. They also used to have a clause in their contracts that they signed with the, the client and a 10% federation administrative charge. Ooh, that's good. And they would tell people that's the union charges. Right. They're like as if they weren't keeping it, but they were just charging an extra 10% on top. And that was because they had that same kind of lack of respect for their client as yeah. they did for the musicians. If you could take it and no one says anything, oh, right. take it. The contract said 10% union administrative charge. I remember that. Oh, yeah, you had it too. On, on the Stank Flame contracts. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, you know, the, the early days of club dates were like really larcenous. Gangster. Yeah, <laughs> larcenous like, like is a good word, yeah. Yeah, but I discovered with Cy that if you busted him on it, and you could scream at him with every expletive you can imagine, he would respect you for that. And so he wouldn't do it. 
And I started telling all the guys in the band about this. And I used to have guys coming over to my house on Thursdays, which was Directions Day, and just to listen in on the phone calls that I would have with Cy, <laughs> because I'd start screaming at him and cursing him out, and they couldn't believe that that's what I was doing. With and your then, employer. And then, I, then I'd hang up the phone, and I'd say, this is what you guys have to start doing, or he's just going to rob you blind. Well, better yet, okay, thanks, Cy. Talk to you next week <laughs> after all that. <laughs> right. Well, the last time I spoke to Cy, because I called it Cy Kogan's School of Assertiveness Training, because he did reduce me to tears on one particular gig. I can't even remember what happened, but he did. And from that point forward, I started being able to stand up for myself better. The last time we spoke, I can't even say it. I, I'm going to yeah, have... say it. Yeah? Yeah. Well, rated E. Come he, on. You're going to tell me there's something you can't say on this podcast? Yeah, After what I've said? Yeah. Well, then we did quack that out. Anyway, I, uh, I called him a fucking scumbag and he called me a fucking cunt i might have to anyway back yeah. to you <laughs> why would you cut that <laughs> I, i've been called a cunt too that's, that's the best thing you've said all day. Yeah, the and, last time we spoke and, yeah okay so one of the nicknames that we had for Cy was old magnet shoes because he used to set the pa head on the floor and then he'd plug the microphones into the front of the pa but he wouldn't loop them around the handle or anything. He just plugged them in. And then, without a doubt, every job that he, we would be playing, at some point he would be walking past the PA and he'd pull somebody's microphone out while they were singing. <laughs> so we used to call him Old Magnet Shoes. So one day we're doing a job on a Monday night uh, for the Baker's Convention, Temple Hillel in Rosedale. Yeah, it was, it was. Yeah. And because of that, all the band leaders were on one band because it was a Monday and nobody else was doing a club date. Before we started the job, Cy was not in the room, and I turned to the band and I said, listen, guys, during the course of this party, I'm going to pull Cy's microphone out of the PA <laughs> 10 times. I was there. I was there on this gig. Yeah. 10 times I'm going to do it. And he's so used to it being his fault <laughs> that he's not going to know. <laughs> and we went through the job, yep. and every now and then, yep. I just pull it out. and But not all the way, just like enough. Just enough, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and he would turn around, and he, he wouldn't think twice. He would go over the PA and just push it back <laughs> in and go back to playing. The final thing, the 10th time, we're doing the parties over. Right. And he starts doing his little announcements. Hi, Colin, blah, 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 blah. We'll see you again soon. And he goes... Ba 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 ba, and I pull it out, and it's number ten, <laughs> and it comes out, and I put my bass down. I was playing bass, and I turned to the band, and I took a bow. Yeah, we all applauded. <laughs> and the whole band applauded. And he still didn't know it was you, even the tenth well, no, time. At that time, yeah, at that point, oh, he did. knew it was me. Yeah, that okay. was a great night. Yeah. Then there was a water gun incident. More than one. Right. You did that for a long time. I'm the one that actually queered that. I think. No, I did that before you were even playing with us. No, I know. You did a lot, but then I had my... Well, you tell yours, and then... Yeah, my favorite one was we were at Tree of Life, which was a downstairs uh, temple. The, the room was downstairs. And it had a very narrow, long stage projecting out into the dance floor, so there wasn't room to spread out sideways. Right. So we were in layers. It was me and the drummer and the keyboard player, then the horn players, and then Cy and the lead singer set up like in a line, in eye formation. <laughs> right, right, right. So I had a water gun that I had in, in the inside pocket of my jacket. And every now and then during the course of the party, I would tell the horn players just to part and I would squirt sigh with the water gun, but not on his, his on his, yeah, the back of his jacket, not <laughs> on his skin where he would feel it happen. So by the time the soup was being served, it started to soak through. And after the soup, he started feeling wet on his back. So now we get to the main course, and uh, he's brushing his back because there's this big wet spot. And I say, what happened, Cy? He says, those fucking waiters, they spilled soup all over my jacket. I said, wow, that's terrible, man. If I were you, I'd go give them a piece of my mind. <laughs> so he says, you know, you're right. And he goes back into the kitchen. All of a sudden, I hear dishes breaking, people screaming. He's like berating these waiters for like, and we didn't, we didn't do nothing. We don't do nothing, you know. And he comes out like with this big grin on his face. I told those motherfuckers <laughs> out, you know. This continues, though, through the course of the job. I keep soaking oh, his jacket. Yeah. yeah. 
Finally, at the end of the party, there's very few people there. There's like four people left in the party. And uh, at this point, I know it's it's over. It's time to get serious. So I have the guy's part. <laughs> And I hit him right in the back of the neck <laughs> while he's playing his clarinet. And he whips around and sees me putting the gun back into my jacket. And his eyes light up and he's furious. And he says to me, you motherfucker, it was you? <laughs> and I put my bass down and I stand up and I take out the gun and I said, yeah, it was me. And I start chasing him around the dance floor. And he's running from me and I'm chasing him. And the band is just falling down hysterical. But he could take that right. stuff. So I just want to cut in. Many years later, having seen this technique, we were doing a giant job for Fortune Us. The all three yeah. rooms of the Crest Hollow were, you know, opened up. Same thing, tears. Four horn players in front of me. I had one of those Yamaha keyboards that had like a shelf on it, so I had the water gun right there. <laughs> I didn't have to play bass. Right. And uh, same thing, I'm taking shots at him all night. <laughs> but he doesn't suspect me. There's like a 10-piece band, so he's like... Cursing out every other guy, uh, not me. Because now he knows it, it's coming from the inside. That's right, but he didn't suspect me until I was singing hot stuff and he caught me, right? Uh, now, I'm about three feet off the air, maybe, you know. So I'm playing hot stuff, and he comes around the other side, and while I'm singing, hot stuff, baby, this end of playing, my other hand, we're battling for the water gun, right? He wants to shoot you. Yeah, he's trying to get it out of my hand, <laughs> right? And finally he does, right? And I think we're playing this solo by now, and I, I said, no, no, you won't. And I grabbed my water glass, and I said, try it, you know, try it. <laughs> hot stuff, baby, this end of Oh, God. You know, but that's an indication of what I was saying. He had respect for you if you came back at him. He had no respect for you if you didn't. Well, he sounds unique. I, I didn't he was. Ever he work was. for anyone like that? Quite a character. Yeah. Yeah. And what about? Do you remember a club date that was like the best club date you ever had? I do remember one that was really great. It Let's was hear. at uh, Le Chateau. Oh, that's that place in, in Salem. South Salem. Yeah. Uh, it was a gig that was like a five-piece band. Small place. I played there. Yeah. Pete O'Brien was the drummer. Tate Sims was the oh, bass, player. bass player. Mike Giordano was the keyboard player. I was the guitar player. And Larry Ballaroo was the uh, leader. Oh, great. Great band. And so Larry was calling all these tunes that we all know that we don't usually get to play on uh, club dates. Right. We did I Just Want to Stop by Gino Vanelli. Oh, nice. We did all these really great tunes. Yeah. And it was so much fun that when we finished... Tate screamed out, no, no, this gig can't be over, no, I want to keep playing, come yeah. on, overtime, go get overtime, Larry, yeah. you know, it was just so much fun, it, yeah, the you music know, was just spectacular. Sometimes that'll happen, with the groove is just so great. I remember the last time I worked with you, they had benching, and there was um, a male singer who thought the gig was over, and like he went home, Yeah, you remember? I don't want to, like, say his name, but... Yeah, Eric. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Eric Yeah, that was, that was for Shelley Lang. Oh, uh, you remember? Yeah. But it was yeah. like, where, where is he? He just went. He just yeah. thought it was over because they right. were benching. Benching is like praying or well, something. Well, that's better than the gig I had in Vermont when they, they bailed because the weather was so bad. Right, they said, I'm out of here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, and Shelley wanted to do some dance music when they were done, and he said, where's Eric? And I didn't know, and I called Eric. I said, where are you? He says, I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the gig was over. Wow. How close was he to his house? I mean, uh, benching I doesn't go on that long. Well, it's a good 20 minutes at least. I guess if you're doing it. Right? yeah. So I want to ask you this, too. The answer's been kind of similar for everyone, but I'll ask you. Knowing what you know now, all about the club date business and, and being a professional freelance musician. Because, by the way, audience, I just want to say that although Larry worked for Cy a lot, one of Larry's credits is that he's worked for so many band leaders. Just like... He's in demand. He's a living legend. Okay. But anyway, knowing what you know now, what would you have told the 13-year-old that you think it would have helped him to know? Get more money. Because <laughs> he was shorting me at $15. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. the musicians that he was paying on the bandstand were getting a lot more money. Right. And it took me a long time till I got up the gumption to ask him for more money. Okay. And of course, at first he said no, but then I got a little bit more assertive about it. And so I worked up to 
$20 a gig. Right. But then we were doing overtime all the time. Right. You know, and two, he wasn't three paying hours the overtime. He wasn't paying me for the overtime. Wow. And then the guys were getting paid overtime. So I made it $20 and $5 an hour overtime, then 25 and 10 mm-hmm. And then I joined the union when I was like 17. And that was the last time Herb Rosen used me. Right. Right. Because he didn't want to pay scale. Herb Sherry paid me $10 an hour on the one gig that I did for him. Yeah, yeah. but then, because yeah. people had been playing for Herb and had heard what I was doing, I had this reputation, and right. Nat Mash called me. Yes, the famous Nat yes. Mash. Yes, for those of you in the Club Day business who did not get to know Nat, Nat was an independent contractor in the truest sense, because he had a lot of musicians that he represented but didn't charge the musicians anything for representing them. How did he make money? Or for the leaders. Oh, so they would pay him a commission for getting him, for contracting for them. Exactly. The leaders would call him and say, I need two sax players, a drummer, a a guitar player. And he charged them per guy. But even then, they didn't try to give me your phone number, you know, and I'm going to call you directly. I mean... They did, but we were loving Nat because, I mean, Nat loved me. He used to call me... Uh, Larry, that's how we talk. <laughs> uh, on Saturday night, uh, there are three different jobs you could do. You could work for uh, Milty Davidson. It'll be an easy job. It'll be a four-hour job, non-continuous. You get to eat, <laughs> you know. Or you could work for uh, Walter Werbel at the Hillside House, and uh, that'll probably be a five-hour job, and uh, but it won't be too bad. Or you could work for Cy Kogan, and uh, the, his, his job will probably be a six-hour job, but he'll work you really hard. Uh, which one do you want to do? <laughs> God, can you imagine? I like you, and you get to eat like like that's like packed into it. Well, for yeah. me, that's definitely a plus. And then there was this drummer, Albie Burke, who was a great drummer. And he, Nat, when he used to want to cement a relationship with a band leader, he would send Albie and I together to right. their thing, and, and then he'd kill. And then he'd kill. So listen, I loved Nat, and I would never sort of betray him, you know. But then at one point, Cy was offering me like a steady thing and a lot of work. And I, I said to Nat, what do you think, Nat? Is it okay if I do this? And he said, yeah, I don't want to be in your way. Go oh, ahead and do nice. it. Oh, that's nice. He was a really great guy. Okay, but beyond the money, is there other advice about being a professional freelancer that you would have told your young teenage self? Or anyone young who wants to be a professional freelance musician now? Go to podiatry school. <laughs> well, I would, I would tell other people uh, what I just sort of inferred, because I just sort of caught on that the more different things that I could do, the more work I could get. And this is what everybody says. And That's it's true right. today. It is totally true now and always. Yeah. The difference, though, is that being a freelance musician today is not an easy thing because there are not a lot of people who are hiring freelance musicians in the club date business anymore. Right. It's all bands. It's all set bands, right. and it's showcases, as, and it's a lot of homework. As almost like that's like the right thing to do, because, you know, it's going to sound better if it's a set band most of the time. Most you know? of the time, unless yes. you hire people like us. Well, the music is also so much more complicated. The people that's that true. are doing the records are, are using a lot more technology to create the music. Right. It's hard. I mean, a lot of bands are using, like, tracks underneath. Yeah, Yeah, so, because they can't do it. Yes, it's a different world than it was. It's a different world. And there's not the school to go to that I went to when I was basically doing these jobs. Yeah, that we all went to. I mean, at one point, when I first joined the union, I used to go down to the union floor, which was at the Roseland Ballroom. Mm -hmm. On Wednesdays, they used to have union day. Right. And you'd have, I don't know, maybe 200 musicians milling yeah. around on, in Roseland. Amazing. And there'd be a guy up on the stage at a table with a microphone, and the leaders would go up to this guy and tell them what they needed for the weekend. He would announce it over the microphone, and a whole bunch of guys would like kind of rush the stage. <laughs> and the, the band leader would ask you, who have you played with? Yeah. Do you know this? Do you know that? And hire the guys. Yeah. And that's how freelance it was. Yeah. So, so I, really well, I was playing with everybody and anybody. I would say by the time I was like 19 and 20, I was doing 200 jobs a year. Right. And it was a good living. It was a great living, you know. And I was the only one of my friends who had money. <laughs> but I just want to jam two right, stories about Cy in. Go right ahead. Okay. One, we, this was a prank that we played on him. We got to the job, and Cy brought his clarinet in, and then he went back out to the car and... Pat and I took his clarinet and we shoved a sponge into one of the sections <laughs> so that it wasn't completely clogged, but it made it hard to play. 
And he comes in and he has no idea it's there. And he puts his clarinet together and he starts playing the job. And you could see he's turning purple because mm -hmm. he's having to blow so hard. And he keeps twisting the clarinet and looking in the mouthpiece and trying to figure out what's going on and never figured out what was happening until the end of the job. <laughs> when he took it when apart. When he took it apart and tried to put that thing through to get rid of the spit and couldn't get it through that section and found the sponge. Do you remember why you did that? Was he pissing you off or something? No, it was just it was because just we liked to funny. play pranks on, on Psy. Right. Because, you know, he... he was so merciless to some of the musicians that we kind of resented that he's treating other people badly. Right. So we felt he deserved pranks. Yes, he did. I the tell other? the other one, I know what it is. The other one is, because I was freelancing so much, even when I was working for Cy, he had a lot of jobs, but I, had, I was able to get more jobs than what he had. I had this spiral notebook that I used to carry around with chord changes to the songs that I do so that I could just put it on the keyboard player's uh, keyboard and tell him, look, this is all the tunes I do, and if you're not familiar with something, just turn to it. There's an index page on the front, numbered, you know. Cy always used to want to take the book from me and take it home with him. And, and copy I, it. And I would say, it's Cy. No, no, like, no, like the Holy Grail, you know, you don't want to let it out of your sight. Yeah. No, but that's why he wanted to take it. He wanted to notate what you had. No, make he didn't another want to copy. Notate it. He, no, he just, just wanted, wanted to own it. Larry's version. Yeah. Well, so that's crazy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I used to fight with him about it, but one day I said, you know, I'm tired of fighting with about it. I'm going to change this up. So one day he asked me, and I and I say, yeah, I'm not working tomorrow. You could take it home. I'll see you next weekend. Uh -oh. So he puts it in his bag, and then he starts loading out, but his bag is still there. I take it out of the bag. <laughs> and then I see him the next weekend, and I say to him, Sai, where's my book? <laughs> oh, I got it in my bag. And he goes over to the bag, and he's rummaging through, rummaging oh, through. Right. He can't find it. He can't find it. He can't find it. Sai, give me my book. I need my book. I, it's not in here. What do you mean it's not in here? Uh, that Al Israel, he must have taken it. Al was a keyboard player. <laughs> I said, Sai, are you telling me you lost my book? You must be kidding. You lost my book? And I'm pissed, you know. Of course I'm not. I have You're the book. You're a good actor. I have the book. Yeah, he is. For six months. Oh, my God. I didn't bring the book to his jobs. Wow. Six months. You could have just made a new one. Here's the new one. I could have easily. Right. But I had to teach him that he... <laughs> But, I mean, didn't the gigs suffer, kind of, because the keyboard players didn't? No, because at this point, George was on every oh, job. Oh, so he knew everything you did. Yeah. Right. Did you nudge him about it on every gig? Yeah. <laughs> did you find it yet? Every did you gig. find it yet? Every gig. <laughs> For six months. And then when Then we're doing a job him? in Deal, New Jersey, uh -huh. and he comes in, he brings in the bag, and then he goes out to the car again. I put the book back in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> Then he comes in and I say, Sai, I'm all set up. Do you want me to help you set up? He says, sure. So I go over to the bag. And I open the bag and I, Sai, Sai, what's this? And I pull out the book and I say, Sai, are you telling me you've had my book for the last six months and you didn't tell me? Motherfucker, you're never going to see this book again. And he never knew. He never knew? He never knew. And then you took it away again. I took it away again. That's great. That's a yeah. good story. Well, is there any gig that we had together that you remember particularly? Well, the only gig that I love doing is the gig we're going to be doing on Monday. Oh, yeah, the DEA. The DEA job. Yeah. Yeah, we do this annual awards dinner for the DEA, which is basically for every law enforcement agency you can imagine. The CIA, the FBI, uh, yeah. NCIS. The I awards mean, are for every narc in the country that's made a big bust. And yeah. you like this gig, why? Because <laughs> we we play when it starts for about a, an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. Listening music, yeah. Because it's then, a sausage fest. Right. right. And then they go into speeches and awards. awards. And that thing takes at least an hour, sometimes an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and a half it was always uh, done at uh, the Harmony Club yeah, in, in Manhattan. Manhattan, right across the street from Central Park. And so when we would take the break, I would go into Central Park and get high. Right. <laughs> you get high? <laughs> Just because you have to stick it to the man. Right. Yeah. And
and I'd come back into the Harmony Club. High as and, shit. And we would sit in the library and tell club date stories right. and yeah. laugh and, yeah. and as high as can be. And to this day, we're still doing that job. Yeah, we're doing it on Monday. We're doing it this well, coming we Monday. Except on Long Island. We won't put the episode out until yeah. after Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Larry okay. Bass and arrested. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, now weed is legal, so it doesn't matter. That's true. Yeah, that's right. It finally happened. Yeah. Well, Larry, I love you so much. We're still playing together, and I'm so happy that we're still playing together. And, and I like you, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for well, coming. Well, thank you, ladies. And so, may your... Now I could say I have two gig hoes who love me. That's mm-hmm. right. You probably have more than that. <laughs> so, may your gigs be plentiful. <laughs> And may your book never get lost again. (laughs) (laughs) Unless it's by my own volition. Volition. (laughs) And uh, until next time, we are the The Gig Gig Hose. Credit of the week. (sighs) Uh, So I think it's my turn. I want to talk about a little song called A Place of My Own. It was the first time I was living in an apartment all by myself. And it was inhabited by a swinging bachelor before me. And it was, I needed a hazmat suit to go in there and clean it up. It was really, literally, there was scuzz all over the bathtub and it was brutal. So I'm in there with the, you know, the industrial strength rubber gloves. And it just occurred to me, like this little thing occurred to me while I was cleaning it. I'll have to scrub the walls, the tub, right? And, and so this song was born. And um, I also did this in my studio with great, great musicians. And it's, it's this really, you know, a lot of times you write a song, you, you're hoping it'll be commercially viable. This just, it's just a really artsy kind of thing. And I never thought it would have a life. And it never did. But it still has a life because it exists. I mean, right. you know, yeah, you know, it's there. And it's a beautiful piece of music. So here it is. It's called A Place of My Own. Well, I just moved in and I'm so glad to say that it's mine. It's a place of my own. And the guy before me must have had one hell of a time. It's a place of my own. There'll be no one here to laugh at me or tell me I'm wrong. In a place of my I can be as crazy as I like and still I'll belong in a place of my own. full song. Follow the link on the Gig Host Facebook page. The Gig Host podcast is produced and recorded by Marla Joe and Willa Basson, also known as the Gig Host. Thanks to Jeremy Goldberg for opening voiceover.